Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there, Alistair Campbell here, Editor-at-Large of The New European. Write a weekly column covering politics, Europe, Scotland, Ireland, mental health, sport... Lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff. And if you'd like to enjoy more from the European, please join us. Subscribe for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, then just join us by subscribing for £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. My name is Steve Anglesey, and it turns out that the oven-ready deal is fine as long as you don't want to cook sausages in your oven. Who'd have thought, hey, that when Michael Gove said, we hold all the cards, one of the cards we held was the one reading, we agree not to send sausages to part of our own country anymore without checks. What card that is, I'm not sure they sell that one in Clinton's. And who would have expected the EU to actually abide by the details of the deal that we agreed with them and insist that we abide by them as well? Outrageous. Surely we can just get Boris Johnson to say that in his judgment, we are abiding by the details of that deal, even though we're not. Or does that only work for breaches of the ministerial code and breaking manifesto pledges on aid and getting your flat decoration paid by somebody you don't know and ducking out of due process to award PPE contracts to your family and friends. As the five-year anniversary of the referendum looms over us like the anniversary of the death of a loved one, the Brexit chicken nuggets are coming home to roost, as long as they're not planning to roost in Northern Ireland, obviously. We'll be talking about that later in the podcast. But before we start, let's play a bit of fantasy politics. We asked listeners of the New European uh, podcast, which cabinet minister would you sack first and why? Here are some of your responses. Dr Marjorie Bark says, Boris Johnson, start at the top and work your way down the list. Jake Ellis says, Robert Jenrick, a complete failure to address the ongoing cladding scandal and a continued stubborn refusal to collect data because he knows it would show what a failure he's been. Martin Ridgway says, Pretty Patel, most of the rest are driven by incompetence and grift. She is driven by contempt. Des McGinn says, Williamson for ineptitude. Grumpty Dumpty, possibly not his real name, says, Matt Hancock, incompetence, untrustworthy, He's a manipulator of the truth. And Daffy Bates says there should be no favouritism. The lot must go. Well, maybe we'll read out more of those uh, next week. We've got quite a lot of those in already. My first guest today is a writer and author of fiction and non-fiction. He's written books including Rancid Aluminium, Speak for England, 
Uh, Englanders and Huns, the culture clash which led to the First World War. His piece in this week's New European Charts, The Origins of Brexit from Oxford Brooks University. Welcome to James Hawes. Hi, James. Good morning, Steve. Uh, James, um, I, I normally ask this to guests. How are you? How are you enjoying your Brexit so far? Is it is it just just as good as you expected? Is it slightly worse? Is it is it slightly better even? I don't know. It's I I, I think it's it's just unrolling slowly as as all the nightmare we confidently expected would be. It's been delayed because you know the the, the COVID epidemic just froze everything solid for a little while across the world, including here, but the fallout, it's just like the, the avalanche has been suspended, frozen there. And as soon as that thaws, it's going to come down on our heads. You know, it's... Yes. Uh, yes. Scotland's yeah. off. That's, that, that's, now, that's now a done deal. And I'm speaking as a quarter Scot. I was brought up in Scotland. I, I do understand Scotland. Um, it's off. There's, there's just a question of when now. Uh, Ireland's bursting into flames. And it looks as though the government has even managed to screw up the special relationship, which is a pretty bloody clever, considering that the special relationship was all they ever wanted, really, this gang of Tories. It's, in, it's quite incredible, isn't it? Um, I mean, your, your piece for the New European is, is, is about the, the origins of this whole mess and, and how it's rooted in internal Tory strife or elite strife, I think. I mean, but surely wasn't Brexit just, you know, the, the direct enactment of of the will of the British people, a dissatisfaction with the EU that was deep-rooted for years and had been, you know, felt very keenly by lots of voters for years. Or not. That, that, that's, that's the myth we have to fight against because people just do not seem to understand the way referendums work. The referendums are not the will of the people. Referendums are how people like the French Revolution and Napoleon and in, in, our, in our age, uh, in our century, last century, Hitler, marshaled what they called the will of the people to follow their agenda. Because what you do is, if you are in power, or if in the case of the Brexiteers, if you can somehow manipulate a weak and spineless leader like Cameron into letting you set your question, or if you're Napoleon, you set your own question, you immediately make that into the agenda. Mm-hmm. Even if, now the Financial Times pointed us out several times in, in around 2013, that the issue of Europe stroke the EU in the YouGov surveys never made the top 10 of British people's concerns when asked as a, as a genuine question, what worries you in the world? Referendums are classic leading questions. Do you want a Polian emperor? Yes or no? Uh, well, whatever. Do you approve the Fuhrer? Yes or no? You make everything into a simple question, even if it wasn't a question anyone would have bothered asking in the first place. So let's just kill that one once and for all. Not the direct expression of the will of the people. A, because that kind of thing doesn't exist. It's a fantasy of the French bloody revolution and, and, and Leninists and fascists. And B, because that's not how referendums work. They are tricks. And Mar- you know, Attlee knew this. Margaret Thatcher famously seemed to agree with Attlee, saying they're a trick of dictators. Yes. I mean, you're, you, you are arguing that, that Brexit is a, an argument the Tory party's had with itself, or the elites have had that with themselves, I, I think. Um, and you, you write in this piece, which is this great piece, uh, uh, people who've not read it yet must, uh, must pick up the paper and, and do so. You write that all nations prosper best when their elites are united. What's, just expand on that. What does, what does that mean? Well, it means that you know when, when, when Marx says it's all about class struggle, it's not. If you actually look at history, particularly history in Britain, what has always been the thing that brings the crisis upon us is when within the elite, whoever the elite are at the time, a different group decides to seize power in a kind of internal elite coup. Mm. That's what the Reformation was. 
You know, that's what that's what the civil war was all about. And when things are well, so if you look at the, the 18th century and the, and the 19th century, the age in which you know, Great Britain was created, the UK was created, and this weird multinational, multicultural state became the most powerful in the world. At that stage, we were, we were ruled by a united and, and transnational elite. You couldn't put a cigarette paper between a member of the, the English, Welsh, Scots and Irish ruling order in, say, 1830. They were they were they all went to the they all they all had the same education they all they all believed in the same things and things were stable and things uh, the politics was peaceful people got on with prosperity instead of instead of smashing it all to try and grab hmm. grab the proceeds for themselves which is what happens when elites split yes that's that, that, that's that's right I mean you you, you we we kind of. John Major, poor old John Major is getting some of the blame for this, or, or at least what happened at the 1992 election and what happened subsequently well, is kind of the trigger, isn't it? For, yeah, for he'd, I mean, obviously he didn't mean it because Major was, was himself a stout European who, unlike Cameron, yes, he stared down the people who he himself famously called bastards. And I think anyone who's listening to this who isn't, you know, instinctively anti-Tory, in many ways I'm a small C conservative myself. And just remember that the descriptions I'm giving you now... Um, like a demented Marxist sect, that's yeah. Douglas Heard on the Brexiteers. Bastards is John Major. Swivel-eyed loons is David Cameron. These are all Tories talking about other Tories. And Major faced them down. But what happened there was that his success, and it was very unexpected. I was living in Sheffield at the time and working at Sheffield University, and everybody, all my friends, everybody confidently expected Labour would win, including most Tories. Yes, Sheffield scene of the we're all right rally, wasn't it? Absolutely, because people just assumed there'd been this model of politics in the whole UK ever since the dawn of the democratic age, which was a league of the northern English and industrial Celts, originally the Irish as well in Gladstone's day, would face off against the Tory south of England. That's all, that, that's the whole thing. Whether you called that alliance liberal labour, it makes no difference. It wasn't actually about ideologies. It's about tribes. And they're the same tribes as in the Civil War, basically. But that's, and that face-off went on right from 1885, the first election after the Great Reform Act, right up to 2015. And it, but it looked in 1992 as though John Major had actually finally broken the mould. You know, four victories in a row against all the odds, against the background of really bad economic news. And it seemed to the Tories at the time that, shit, you know, we now have no challenger. And they looked to the electoral maths and they knew instinctively that because of the preponderant population of the south of England, if you just control everything south of Trent, you have the power to rule the whole UK. And suddenly the Conservatives, who had thrown Margaret Thatcher out because they were scared of losing, thought, shit, we actually could have won with, we can win with anybody. We can do anything we like. And so the Thatcherite wing of the Tory party thought, geez, we threw Thatcher away for nothing. We threw under a bus. We didn't need to. And in their vituperation and rage, they, they were determined from that moment on, people like young Dan Hannon and people right back then, they were determined that it would be them who were going to be the beneficiaries of this, what they thought, decisive and, and, and forever breakthrough in British politics. And they have, but I mean, but the Conservatives really have been in a, a state of civil war for for the last 50 years, I, I, I would imagine. I mean, I guess, yeah, it, I guess it is. Thatcher against Heath, when was that, 75? It is nearly, it is nearly a 50-year civil war. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the 
the real catalyst, of course, of this, as you said, is is David Cameron. Why? I mean, there he is. He he comes in in 2010. He's he's a pro Europe or openly pro Europe guy. He's governing with the pro Europe Lib Dems. UKIP are only getting three percent of the the vote at the general election. How on earth did we manage to get he he managed to take us from from there to to 2016? What were the forces that that kind of drove him there? Oh, it's really simple. It's entryism into his own party. You know, by then, he and that's why in that year, 2012, what was it, 20, early 2013, he referred to the so-called swivel-eyed loons in his own constituency associations. Uh, they are being systematically infiltrated. That's what people like Hannum are advising them to do, UKIP supporters. Um, so that conservative, the, the, the numbers were falling. Most conservative institutions have only got a couple of dozen members. So, you know, and they're being infiltrated. It was quite easy, as it was for, for militants in the Labour Party, to infiltrate the small associations who will yeah. then start to put pressure on their MPs for, to be not deselected, who and the MPs will then put pressure on the Prime Minister. So it was internal Tory pressure on him, but it wasn't pressure from the country. It was just to secure his position that he needed to hold the referendum. Uh, and likewise with Johnson, the, the reason Johnson broke for leave was because it was his only way to kick out Cameron. Because Cameron, when he finally won, when he actually finally won the 2015 election, looked bulletproof, don't forget. He'd, yes. he'd, he'd spearheaded the, the successful bid to keep Scotland in the Union. And he'd again foiled the bookies. I remember my, my son bet, betted the night before on Cameron. He got seven to one on Cameron getting a majority. No one expected it. And so Cameron was bulletproof. And the only way Johnson, who was his lifelong rival, was ever going to have a chance to beat him was if he if he found if he found a vehicle to attack Cameron with. You couldn't just stand against him because he was a successful Tory leader. And Brexit was simply the vehicle for Johnson's personal ambition then. And that was vital for them because no one liked, you know, the voters, no one in the 90s liked Farage and Hannah people because they're all weirdos, frankly. Mm. They're mad zealots, as Douglas Heard said. And Johnson was the only person, his intervention was vital. He was the only person who could give it that kind of jolly, hail fellow, well-met spin to what was actually a brutal and vicious theory of cultural warfare and a hatred of the so-called liberal elites and so forth. He, and he was absolutely central to them. But the reason he did it was because it was the only way he could, uh, he could trump cameraman. Cameraman, so cameraman. What is going to be the next stage of this sort of war of the Tory elites then? Because they, you know, they, they've kind of, they've got what they wanted now, haven't they? And... Uh... But and also, what happens to that kind of tendency that that's that's been expelled the 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 major rights, but also people like Philip Hammond and and Amber Rudd, who clearly yeah, and Dominic Grieve and that sort of people. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, I don't know. In, in some ways, you know, in, in a mad way, the, I think the best thing one, one should call up anyone who's a kind of centrist liberal, basically, to go and storm the local Tory party and join it and do a kind of rever you know, reverse entry, reverse takeover. Yeah. Um, in, in the same way as the, 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 the straight guys took back the Labour Party, you know, um, for in, 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 in order to, to, to keep to get Blair in. I mean, it, it, that's the only hope because the Labour Party is no hope, frankly. The, Labour, the day of the Labour Party is done because the Labour Party was born within the UK. And because the Labour Party was only ever an alliance of the north of England with the industrial Celts, that's why its first five leaders were Scotsmen. If, the, if and when the UK breaks up, as it's going to do, the Labour Party is just completely neutered. It's got to, you know, the forces have got to completely reinvent themselves. And you to create some... Sorry, go on. 
is to create something like the German CDU, which could be at once the home to people like, say, Dominic Grieve and Tony Blair and me. Mm. Yes. So you see the breakup of the the UK as inevitable then? It's not just not just not just because you'll get an EU passport then, like I will from my Scottish mum. No, it's in, it's inevitable. I mean, um, I, I, I've just written writing another article for Prospect actually, and there I found this, for that one. I found a fantastic quote from Lloyd George trying to explain to people in 1920 why Ireland's going, and he says we have spent hundreds of millions then in, George, in Edwardian times on trying to make Ireland happy. It's never been so prosperous. No one cares. The grievance is not material, says Lloyd George. Anyone who people can say to the blue in the face about the Barnett's, the Barnett formula and how it benefits Scotland and so forth. The day of that is done. You know, Mm. Scotland is going um, because it's now become completely clear that the fudge at the heart of the UK is that flag. The Union Jack, is that the flag of all of us or just some of us, became so clear in 2019. Oven ready wrapped in the UK, it's just the flag of English nationalism now. Yes. And, and, and of the kind of extreme weird branches of, of Irish and Scottish unionism, the, the Rangers and the Rangers and the, and the Orange Men, you know. It is, I mean, it, this is a, 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 it's a fascinating piece. And, um, you know, the next few years are, are just... Uh, well, it's. It, I guess. It, I mean, it's it, the whole thing is like watching a, a slow motion uh, car wreck, isn't it, at the moment? And it uh, is. But but our side, I think, you know, it's about sides. You know, there's no there's no ducking. I was talking to some Germans the other day and say, you know, you've no idea how 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 completely solid the sides are in in Britain right now. Yes. And our side's got to take a leaf out of their book. You know, for for years, people like Farage and Hannan knew damn well they had no great support in the polls. They wouldn't have won a referendum in the 90s if they managed to get one. They knew that. But what they did was they sapped and they dug and they undermined and they entryismed. Hmm. And we've got to be prepared for a long fight like that to, to, re- to retake the political mechanisms of this country. when people Because people will eventually see sense, I think. Yes, I think they. Uh, I think they. They definitely will. Um, I think they definitely will. But it's, I, th- I think it's an awful long way away, isn't it? Um, it people is, are. So, people are so dug in. It was. It took Daniel Hannan twenty years to get his referendum. You know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, let's close by uh, by talking about you, James. I mean, people will. Uh, some listeners will will definitely be familiar with the the the, the, the books that you wrote at the start of your career. We were talking before we came on about a white murk with fins, which I think might have been your, was that your first book? And Rancid That's Aluminium. A long time ago, yeah. Rancid Aluminium, I know, was, was, was filmed. One that, wasn't, one that wasn't filmed was, um, was your, uh, your book, which anticipated Brexit. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, it's this mad fantasy. It's this mad satire called Speak for England. And it does actually, it, it, it completely, it not only it predicts Brexit, and it predicts a Brexit driven by older voters, actually. So is that, I mean, I'm quite proud of that insight. Um, the BBC was going to make it, and they even they even got Andrew Davis, the great adapter, to adapt it. So I, I'm unfortunately going to go to my grave as the only person in the world to ever have a book adapted by Andrew Davis and not made by the BBC. But you live and learn. And I guess, in a way, knowing I'd been right about that, gave, gave, when it came to write the shortest history of Germany and the shortest history of England, it gave me the confidence to, 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 to trust my own judgment on the big questions, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, that's been a, a great chat, James. I hope you will join us again on the New European Podcast. I'd love to. 
Uh, yeah, that would be that would be superb. You can read uh, James Hawes's wonderful piece, uh, "Major Disaster," in this week's uh, issue of the New European. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just eight pounds a month at theneweuropean.co.uk/slash/subscribe. James Hawes there, and I want to mention that his uh, his excellent book, "The Shortest History of England," is out in paperback. Uh, this week, uh, you must check it out. A lot of uh, a lot of the, the the stuff that he was talking about there is also contained in that book. Uh, my next guest today is our media expert Liz Gerrard. So let's warm up with some of your thoughts about the new uh, TV news channel that's launching this weekend, which I know Liz will be eager to talk about. It's GB News with Andrew Neil, and we asked, "Are you going to be watching it?" And Charles Leggett said. I was considering it, but I just checked my calendar and I found out that every time GB News is on, I'm scheduled to skinny dip in sulfuric acid. And that sounds much more enjoyable. Douglas White says, I'll be too busy re-watching my collection of the works of Lenny Riefenstahl to have time to watch GB News. Jane Bartlett says, I don't eat out of bins. I have a conscience. So no, I won't be watching. Ken Russell says, I love my TV and I don't want to smash it into tiny pieces. So I won't be watching. Brian Corney says, no, I won't be watching because I also don't eat out of the toilet. Bridget Hunter says, no, I won't be watching. I don't think right-leaning propaganda is news. And Leslie William Smith says, no, because it doesn't represent GB and it won't be news. But just for a bit of balance, here's somebody who will be watching. John Lugo Treble says, sure, I will be watching just after I set my testicles on fire. My second guest today is the media commentator, long term uh, New European writer, Liz Gerrard. Liz, hi, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks. And you? I'm very well. I'm very, I'm, 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 there's a spring in my step because what I really believe will heal all the divisions in Britain is the launch of GB News with Andrew yeah, Neil. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. But you've written a piece uh, in this week's New European about the twilight of Rupert Murdoch. And Rupert Murdoch was supposed to be launching his own channel. He, he no longer owns Sky News, but he was supposed to be launching his own channel that was going to rival GB News. It's, it's, what happened there? It's not like him to run away from a fight, is it? No, it isn't. Um, it's it's very unrupert. Um, I mean, they've invested in in studios and they've invested in um, an all star lineup. Well, a lineup of people, you know, the people whose contracts would presumably have to be honoured. With the BBC on its knees, it's a, with over Bashir and the government sort of got its teeth into the BBC after a lifetime of, of, of going for the, of gunning for the BBC suddenly just at the last minute it's been pulled um, I think it's going to be a limited quotes limited streaming thing there's a some game show or other I don't know that people watch game shows on streaming but uh, it's not it's not happening no very very unlike Rupert. is that sort of symptomatic of what is happening with Rupert Murdoch he's Rupert Murdoch has clearly got less influence than he used to have hasn't he he has yes I think that um, he's he's living in the in the Oxfordshire countryside with Jerry uh, a nice bucolic English lifestyle man came from Australia, naturalised American to further his businesses and ends up with his Texan wife in the middle of England. Very weird. And Robert Thompson is calling the shots from New York now, I think. And it's, it's I mean, it's not going great on that side of the Atlantic either, is it? Because, of course, Fox has had several sort of 
big lawsuits. The New York Times has been uh, exposed for, well, it, sorry, the New York Post, oh, Post, exposed Post. for, for publishing fake. fake news, which uh, which even the journalist tried not to write and then was told to to, to write it. What are the other signs that, that Murdoch sort of becalmed or in trouble? The thing is that they've really moved away from the core business. I mean, there's a man who's built up a business from one newspaper. He loves newspapers, he's got ink in his veins, and he's built this, this huge thing. I mean, we call, about, we call him a media magnate, but in fact, he is an old-fashioned press baron. That's what he does. But if you look at his company now, it's it's more driven by real estate services than it is by um, news media. Um, his kids have all gone off their own ways. And now it's just become a corporate entity without having that soul that it had before. When you look at the, when you look at the company report um, from last year, News Corp, that is not Fox, it lists its, its various businesses in, in what it calls segments. And at the top is real estate. Then comes Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal, which is very successful. Then you've got book publishing. Then you've got online streaming, video servicing, which is the only sort of modern media type thing, part of the part of the business, really. And then you've got news media, and that lumps together in a sort of rag bag, the, the, the newspapers in America, Australia and Britain, and the various radio stations. And you can't see how any single bit of that is performing because... Either that it's all smoke and mirrors, the, the figures are, are listed by country rather than by title or by things. So you don't know how much the, the radio station or, or the Times or the Sun is contributing or taking from, from the total thing. It's just a thing at the bottom. And then the final segment in the company report is called Other. And that's, new, that's, that's phone hacking. <laughs> that's, that's just called Other. Um, and that's what they have to pay out every year for whichever court cases they settled this year. Um, I mean, the, the Sun was the kind of the thing that was most closely associated with with Murdoch, wasn't it? I think probably the Sun and then Fox News took over as things that were a personification of Rupert Murdoch. You could see a direct line directly from him to to that, that kind of output. I mean, I've not really read The Sun for many, many years. When I did read it, you know, it was kind of similar to reading the Daily Mail under Paul Dacre. I think it was, you know, I hated every minute of it, but it was so well done, you couldn't really help yourself from turning the, the next page. Is the, is the Sun any good today? Is it different today? No, it's, it's, it's limp and lame, and it's got no... It's got no oomph. Um, it hasn't had any oomph, really, for the last, I don't know, 10 years. You see, Tony Gallagher was very political as an editor. So while he was influential in the Brexit thing and and, um, and the Sun played a big part in, in, in creating Brexit, it wasn't the all things to all people paper that it was before. And now, under the under the current editor, is just so flat, um, and it's just got it's got no oomph or imagination, and it's outstripped in every corner by the Mail and the Star, 
Um, they've all got they've all got their own little things, but the sun is just sort of lost. And I think this is largely because they've been so caught up with the the, the fallout, continued fallout of, of the phone hacking scandal and the privacy laws, even though we supposedly don't have privacy laws, we do have the human rights thing. Um, and so everybody's scared and they're, they're trying to uh, rehabilitate themselves in the eyes of New York, which, of course, Americans are far more Puritan than we are in their outlook. I mean, you might not think it from the New York Post, but from the rest of the press, and from, they are very upright sort of people. So they're just all drained. There's no, there's no, they're not contributing to the finances. They're costing money. You've still got this hangover from phone hacking. And they're just terrified. So they're trying to rehabilitate themselves. They've got all these training programs going on. Um, Everybody has to go through a training program to and, and sign forms to say that they've been through it and that they understand it, that they, they must they must adhere to the code of conduct, their editorial policies um, that they must do. And it's become quite woke. You wouldn't think it of the sun, but it's quite it's that they've got to go through diversity training and everything. These are all things that you would expect of almost any organization but it, they're scared and so they're not going to push any boundaries at all they're not breaking any important stories i mean it's a but i mean it's an anti-woke newspaper isn't it is it a problem do you think that is it a problem that it is so slavishly pro boris johnson because i think I, it it probably stands alone well maybe the telegraph is in there as well but at least the telegraph i mean the telegraph is jabbing away at boris johnson over uh, you know the great unlocking and all of that kind of stuff is it is it a problem for for readers that they're constantly told that Boris Johnson is wonderful I think it is I th- I think they've got it utterly wrong and it's and you do see a corporate thing in this to a degree I mean because the times is pretty much that way too and has become more so. I'm veering away from, from the sun, but it's still Murdoch land. There was a front page la- last week or the week before on the Times that, that really sort of made me growl because it was a picture of Boris Johnson walking Dylan and the headline was um, PM takes the lead in tougher laws on dog napping. And I thought tougher laws on dog napping aren't a front page story full stop. Mm. And I just thought this is just so naff and why why would you do it why are they ramming johnson down everybody's throats if there was an election next week i'd understand it but it's really weird and the sun as you say is completely slavish it's extraordinary i think the sun's totally out of touch either the sun is totally out of touch or i'm totally out of touch and it's perfectly possible that it's the latter um, the number of times they've put a pint of beer as the main front page picture since we've had COVID. I know people want to get out of lockdown and I know that I've had it easy because I've got space around me and I'm not a very sociable person anyway. And I know that people living in a flat with three screaming kids will be going up the wall. I understand all that, but I don't believe that the almighty thing that's troubling the entire country is to get to the pub and have a pint especially since pubs have been open for a month yes the other thing about the sun was this you know they are like like the telegraph as you said and the man they're all bursting at this to get rid of lockdown did you see the 
you say you didn't read it. The, the, the other day, the front page was a, a Euro, Saturday, was a front page um, based on the Euros because everybody had their Euro supplements out on Saturday. Really. Yes. And it was, it was, it, the headline was, um, I'm trying to think what the headline was. I will, uh, I mean, I will, I will, while you're looking for that, I will say that the, um, the, the Sun's front page from, I think it may have been Tuesday or Wednesday of this week, which which simply said Corden Mourinho. Oh, it's, a, it's a brilliant front page. And uh, I mean, yeah, in, in terms of like 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 James Corden's interview with Jose Mourinho is is the the the, the new Frost Nixon is is, <laughs> is quite absolutely remarkable. But it, targeting two the two people that I dislike intensely um, is, is uh, I mean, it's a, I mean, I wasn't going to buy the Sun that day anyway, or any other day, but. <laughs> That, that gave me lots of different that that particular front page. I, I had lots of different directions on that because I thought it was a I thought it was a very striking front page. Um, it had reminiscences of an that I haven't look, look, looked it up yet, but I will do um, of another front page where I think that it might have been during the referendum or during the election. I think it was during the referendum. No, more recent. They got James Corden to interview Cameron I think and I think it had a similar front page so I need to look that up because uh, I think it was I think it was the same thing but the other side of that coin is that when Corden had his trip round LA with with Harry in the open top bus of course they mocked it mercilessly and said you know this is nonsense this is rubbish what what's sort of... so here's a man that less than a month ago they were saying we don't want to hear what you've got to say you, you're just a waste of space and suddenly he's there, he's he's their person yeah, this front page I was talking about. Yeah, the headline was straightforward: "Has come on England." Right. So, and then there's a picture of Boris, of course, up above. Oh, at the top, it's it's free inside the Euro wall chart, and then there's Jose because he's he's doing stuff for Times Radio through the Euros. And so the the main headline: "Come on England," and then underneath it's "We must stick to June the 21st." Euro 2020 fans and pub fears. And then the, 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 the strap line in red is nation united on COVID. And I thought, this is an outright lie. I mean, this isn't just open to interpretation. Beyond wishing that COVID didn't exist, the nation is absolutely not united on COVID and it's not united on lockdown. It's as divided on that as it is on Brexit. Some people are desperate to get out. Some people think it's a terrible idea. Incredible. Absolutely and, incredible. And it's just an absolute lie. And then when you actually get to the, the, the piece itself is so misguided. It's only a two-part two part front page story. Boris Johnson was last night urged to stick to ending lockdown on June the 21st for the sake of our boozers and footy aces. <laughs> Hero of the 1966 World Cup, George Cohen, 81, said, our boys need those fans in pubs and stadiums. And I just think that just shows so much of where the sun has completely lost its way because there's a lie on the headline, there's a, there's a blatant lie. People don't, we all know that sporting journalists have different, you know, talk, talk in a way that, that fans never do, real people mm. don't. But this is a political editor, I think he is, so sort of saying, for the sake of our boozers and footy aces, nobody ever says that. What's wrong with just saying pubs and footballers? And then if you want someone to push your argument, an 81-year-old man 
with or without a World Cup medal really isn't going to strike the chord. It, it's just so desperate. Well, I, I'm, I would also lay a hefty bet on the on the, the the fact that George Cohen, when asked what he thought about things, did not say we need Boris to act to save our boozers and footy aces. No. So uh, I'm, I, I, oh, I, Nor I, indeed did he say our boys need those fans in pubs and stadiums. That's he right, just, yes. He just uh, didn't say it. He didn't say it at all. <laughs> do, do you think any of this bothers Rupert Murdoch anymore or is he just, I mean, he's he's he's... You know, it's it's all very much succession now, isn't it? It's it, you know he's 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 ninety he's ninety years old. Yes, he's he's put, putting his feet up. What no, is no, what no, is no, children no. scurrying around doing? Well, um, the three that that are business oriented. It's, it comes and goes, isn't it? I mean, Latham was supposed to be the heir apparent. When I go back to my early days um, in the Rupert world, um, it was Latham. And then something went wrong with him. I can't remember what it was. We, anyway, there was a bust up. So then James came on and he did B Sky B and he did very well at B Sky B. And then he was brought into News International. And of course, he caught all the flack for. Um, phone hacking. They then Lachlan came back in the frame. Meanwhile, of course, the only one that seems to have a, really seems to have any oomph is Elizabeth, who founded her own television company, Shine, and that was linked to Endemol, which did Big Brother. But Shine does lots of stuff. But she sold that to News Corp some while back, and then that was then sold on to Dutch conglomerate, I think. Um, but she still has she still has her own television companies and interests, and has never really played a big part in News Corp. Never been mm. outed, as far as I'm aware, as a successor. Then, of course, there are two daughters from Wendy. And I always rather wondered whether Grace, who's now, I think, about 21, might just sort of appear if the Wendy thing hadn't all gone wrong. I I wouldn't be surprised to have seen that happen. One of the most controversial things in the newspaper this week, I think, will will be your conclusion to this piece which says uh, it says of Murdoch and the Sun, they may be monsters but we'll miss them when the day finally comes. I'm sure many readers are going to disagree with that. What's How do you think that how do you think that Murdoch... What's the final verdict on Murdoch, do you think? Well, I because think, obviously, I think, I think he's a monster. But he's a monster who created employment for a lot of people, including myself, I have to yes. full disclosure. Um, he, he did invest in journalism. He did... He, I, think he, I think if I were looking at his balance sheet now, I would say he was definitely a force for bad rather than good. They were of their time in the 80s and I think that everything has been downhill since the 80s and there were there was some really nasty stuff went on in the 80s journalistically mm. and dirty tricks and what have you we think that you know this that hacking is nasty and it was um, but they used to do other things that were that were pretty horrendous and not just them but other, pa- other papers too. No, I, I, I don't. I, when I wrote that, I thought well, people said, "Oh, yeah, good riddance," and I thought, "Yes, but we will miss them. It, we may not miss them because 
they were a force for good and we wish they were still here, but we will notice when they're not. That, that was really what I was trying to say. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, that day that day will, will is coming uh, ever closer, isn't it? It's, it's, hard, it's very hard, isn't it? You know, I mean, he has funded some... He's funded some uh, incredible journalists. He's funded some incredible work, you know. And, I mean, the, if mass market things like Titanic, I suppose, he was behind and Avatar and we're all... 20th Century Fox and The Simpsons and then things like Broadcast News was a Fox film and The Thin Red Line was a Fox film, Sideways, King of the Hill, stuff like that. But, I'm, I'm, you know, the balance sheet is pretty heavy uh, on the other side too, isn't it? Where he's going to get judged, funnily enough, in the sort of medium term is not going to be dodgy practices or, I mean, he, good heavens, he brought Trump to us. Yes. I mean, he he gave us Trump. Yes, he, he gave us Trump and Brexit, yes. He didn't single-handedly give us Brexit, but he single-handedly pretty well gave us Trump. Mm. Which was, and for somebody, and that, that it was, that's, that's unforgivable in itself, but also it's unforgivable in its cynicism because he actually, you know, discounted him as a fool and not a proper businessman. He knew that this was not a man that was fit to be president. Yes. That um, he was, you know, just to say, that's the same thing with Johnson. You see, that's the thing that's, we're going through that again now with this, with this slavish um, following of Johnson. We all know that he would much prefer to see Gove there. I'm sure that he would prefer to see Sunak there, but maybe thinks, you know, the time's not right or that things aren't quite going right. But this, this everything happy with Johnson, I think, um, when I was talking to, to an old friend from The Sun at some length about all this last week, and he was as baffled as I was about the slavish Mr Johnson, and then I thought, well, actually, if you look at it, he, you know, he wants he wants Google and Facebook tamed. He wants the BBC tamed. There, there, there are things that that Johnson has said he will do that are of interest to Murdoch. We all, you see, I'm doing. I'm saying the piece. You know, we conflate his businesses, his various business interests, whether it's the Sun or something as big as Fox or as News. But uh, we all talk about it as being murder. Is he real? As you said, you know, is he real? It's not everything is down to the man now, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Uh, well, that was Liz Gerrard. You can read her brilliant piece about Rupert Murdoch in this week's issue of The New European. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Liz, thanks very much for joining us. We'll speak to you soon. That's a pleasure. Take care. And you can follow Liz on Twitter at GameOldGirl. The Hall of Shame now, and uh, it's our home for bad politics. It's our home for uh, things that just generally annoy me. And I want to start with the Daily Express. Uh, now, uh, headline in the Daily Express this week, what happened to the apocalypse? French campaigner eyes Brexit Britain's success. And that was quoting a guy called Francois Asselino. He's the founder of the anti-EU party the Popular Republican Union. And he was quoted praising Liz Truss's trade deal with Norway, which, of course, even the Norwegians have said is a worse deal than the one that Britain had uh, as a member of the EU. Now, Asselino has become a regular source for the Express. He's been quoted recently in stories, headlined things like 
delusional power grab plot savaged by furious MEPs, Brexiteers were right. Uh, France now a flawed democracy, says damning reports. Brussels uh, hardball tactic obliterated by damning new reports. I wonder if there are any reports that the Daily Express doesn't think that are damning. Uh, EU needs UK. All of these quotes, uh, Francois Asselino. Um, but I wonder how much the Daily Express really know about Francois Asselino. I wonder whether they know that he's he's talked about the idea that Marine Le Pen's National Front, Front National in France, is secretly backed by the CIA and liberal politicians and the Bush family, all to undermine the cause of French nationalism. They, you know, he's, he's sort of said that she's making uh, such a bad job of it that it, it must obviously be a CIA plot. And he's also said that the CIA was behind the founding of the European common market in the first place and that its founding fathers, like Robert Schuman, were probably agents of the CIA. So, I mean, what's going on at the Daily Express? And all I can say is, alack, gad, harumph, because, again, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner and the Daily Express has got her column as well. And it's the time of the week when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Daily Express. And she begins quite promisingly this week. I tuned into Time, the BBC's new Sunday drama set in a northern prison, she writes. It is horribly realistic, and it left me wondering just how long it will be before we can keep non-violent prisoners safe. And this is really interesting, I thought. Now, is Anne Widdicombe, who's long been in favour of worse sentences, harsher sentences for criminals, harsher prison regimes, is she actually going to admit that she's been wrong all, all along and change her mind because of a TV programme? Well, we'll never know because there's something more serious than prison violence on Anne Widdicombe's mind. Time was marred only by the mumbling of the chap who plays the prison officer. Why must the BBC continue to let poor articulation ruin show after show? Spot on, Anne. And if only people like uh, John Howard and Elizabeth Fry had concentrated on poor articulation rather than prison reform, what a happier country we would be now. Now, Noel Gallagher is in the Hall of Shame. First, of course, he was a Remainer who didn't bother voting in the referendum. Then he was a Brexiteer who said the People's Vote campaign was fascism. Now he says in a front page uh, a piece in The Sun that Prince Harry is a snowflake who should stop dissing his own family. Well, yeah, because Noel Gallagher's never dissed anyone in his family, has he? But first and foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is Martin Daubney. The former Brexit Party MEP he helped run Lawrence Fox's massively successful campaign as London mayor. He once told a US TV show that Geneva was in Sweden. Anyway, he appeared on talk radio after England versus Romania, the, the friendly the, the other night, before uh, the last friendly before the Euro started. And this is what he said. He said, interestingly, if you look, there were two England players who didn't take the knee. I wonder if any of your listeners know who those two players are. They are leading by example. And listeners then quickly told uh, Martin just who those two players who didn't take the knee were. They were Ayonot Nedelkaru and Nikolai Stanshu. They're from Romania because Martin Daubney hadn't noticed that England weren't the team wearing white. And I keep thinking of something Martin Daubney wrote in the days when he was a terrible journalist rather than just a terrible anti-woke warrior. It was about when he was 10 years old and he was rummaging around at home for his Christmas presents and he came, he came upon something uh, in, his, uh, in his dad's study. It said the magazine was well-thumbed 
and it was stashed with a horde of other vintage porno titles, such as Razzle, Fiesta, and Hustler. It was a rude sexual awakening, and the moment I still joke about with my dad when I discovered, and there's no polite way of putting this, that my dad was a wanker. And all I can say to that is, like father, like son. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to you for listening. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews really do mean a lot to us. So I like them, but they also uh, help boost us up the rankings. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing for just £8 a month at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow the New European on Twitter at the New European. And follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.